Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Sheritz International First Quarter 2021 Results Conference Call and Webcast. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. I would like to remind everyone that this conference call is being recorded today, Thursday, April 29th, 2021 at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I will now turn the presentation over to Joe Ragnelli, Director of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. With me are David Pathy, Shirt CEO, Nathan Reeve, our Interim CFO, and Steve Wood, Shirt's Chief Operating Officer. Before turning the call over to management, I want to bring a couple items to everyone's attention. We did release our Q1 financial results last night in the full package of MD&A financial statements and press release are available on our website as well as on CDAR. We will be making use of a presentation today. A copy of it is available from our website. And we will also be making forward-looking statements on the safe harbor provisions. The full list of risks and uncertainties are spelled out in our AF, which we filed uh, in March and also highlighted in our presentation. At the end of a management presentation, we will have a Q&A session and will be available for any follow-up discussions. David, please go ahead. All right. Um, well, thank you, Joe. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, it seems we are coming out again uh, here with our quarterly results at a, at a very busy time. Uh, so, uh, so thank you, everyone, for taking some time to join us this morning. Uh, very strong quarter for us, as you've seen from the results this morning. Um, very good production numbers uh, out of MOA, both, both nickel and cobalt. Um, and strong, uh, strong pricing resulted in our, uh, our highest quarterly EBITDA in, uh, in almost three years. Um, a few other highlights just on the first slide there before I turn it over to Steve to tell you, give you a bit of an operational update and to Nathan for a few financial things we want to share with you. As we typically do, um, we, uh, we did see distributions start uh, out of the Moa Joint Venture uh, for, for 2021, uh, receiving $5 million there, and, and Nathan will give you a little more context about what we're expecting going forward on that. Uh, we continue to look for opportunities to make incremental improvements to our balance sheet, um, buying back a few million dollars worth of bonds at a discount, and we continue to look to be opportunistic on that. Um, and we did see some collections uh, in our, our, our Cuban overdue receivables. Um, that, as we had talked about a few weeks ago when we announced Q4, is, is a bit choppy at the beginning of the year here as we sort out uh, a number of different uh, issues around um, COVID and around the uh, U.S. sanctions uh, and uh, the unification of the, of the two currencies in Cuba. Uh, but we'll give you a bit more context around that as well. Um, but overall, a very good start to the year that we expect to be able to build on over the course of the year. I will come back at the end, as I usually do, and talk about nickel markets and a couple other matters. But uh, for now, I'm going to ask Steve to, to come on the line and, and give an operational update. Okay, thanks, Dave, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I'll start my discussion this morning, as we normally do in our internal meetings, with a, with a safety share. 
Um, as discussed uh, in, in previous quarters, uh, we continue to devote uh, considerable effort to fostering a, a strong and uh, strong health and safety culture. Uh, this has resulted in Sherit uh, regularly ranking in the, in the best quartile of uh, safety results for our peer group. And we continued that in, in the first quarter of this year where we had uh, a total recordable injury rate of 0.17 and a lost time injury uh, frequency rate of uh, 0.10. And these compared to 0.26 and 0.09 respectively for the same period uh, of last year. And in, in fact, both uh, numbers have decreased in the order of 50% over the last three years. And uh, we're very proud of that and think that that's a significant accomplishment. On to slide five now. I'd like to uh, point out that uh, as committed as we are to employee health and safety, we're equally focused on ESG matters. Um, for example, one initiative that we recently launched uh, relates to our commitment to reducing carbon emissions. In 2020, we identified a number of opportunities to increase the use of uh, renewable energy at MOA, including the use of uh, electric vehicles. To date, we've integrated two electric vehicle vans into our fleet of transportation equipment, and uh, we expect to double the number of EV vans uh, this year. We're also looking to replace diesel-powered land cruisers with uh, similar EV light trucks. Uh, the electrification of our equipment is still at an early stage, but is uh, indicative of the uh, commitment we have to reduce our carbon footprint. Now I'll turn to slide six and discuss our production results uh, with the, uh, from the uh, MOA JV. On a 50% basis, the MOA JV produced uh, 4,188 tons of uh, finished nickel and 477 tons of uh, finished cobalt in the first quarter. And these totals represent increases of uh, 9% and 19% respectively from the uh, same period of last year. The growth was attributable to a number of factors. Uh, most notably, we increased our mixed sulfide availability and improved refinery uh, reliability relative to last year. Uh, if you recall, uh, mixed sulfide's delivery to the refinery in Fort Saskatchewan were disrupted in the first quarter of last year because of rail blockages in our blockades, I should say, in Canada and uh, delays in shipping from MOA due to the uh, inclement weather there. Um, in addition to these factors, uh, cobalt production also grew in, in, in Q1 of this year uh, due to higher cobalt to nickel ratio in the uh, mixed sulfide feed. I should point out that uh, production in the second quarter of this year uh, will be uh, impacted by our full facility shutdown that we have planned to last approximately 11 days. Uh, this full shutdown is now done every six years, whereas previously the interval was five years. And we've been able to extend the interval because of some some good work that we've done in the areas of asset management and uh, operational excellence. Uh, this planned maintenance shutdown uh, was taken into account when we issued our guidance for the year. I'll move on to the next slide, slide number seven, um, and talk about unit costs at the MOA JV. MPR, or our mining, processing, and refining costs, uh, declined 5% in the first quarter relative to last year. Uh, and the decline was largely driven by a reduction in labor and third-party service costs. Uh, the decline was partially offset, however, by the uh, significant increase in input costs. 
In particular, sulfur costs were up 24%, while fuel prices climbed 32% over the same period last year. Another factor that offset the decline of uh, labor costs was the purchase of sulfuric acid in advance of, uh, of an acid plant shutdown plan for the second quarter due to uh, maintenance work. Uh, turning to net direct cash costs, NDCC uh, was uh, $3.83 a pound sold, uh, and that's down 12% from the 4.33 of the first quarter of last year. The improvement was uh, driven by lower NPR costs, but also due to the uh, 33% increase in cobalt byproduct credits as a result of higher realized prices in the first quarter. Now I'll turn to the oil and gas business on slide eight. And uh, as we discussed previously, our sole production sharing contract at PEU Marie uh, expired on March 19th. And this development combined with the um, maturing oil fields resulted in a decrease of uh, oil production in Cuba for the quarter of uh, 33% to 2,202 barrels on a gross working interest basis. Um, as a result of the expiration of the PSC, um, the production sharing contract, we do not anticipate any near-term oil production in Cuba without an earn-in partner or uh, new drilling activities. I should remind everyone of our intention to make no further investments in the oil and gas business without an earn-in partner. And uh, despite a drop in production, the unit cost in the first quarter declined by 24% from last year, and the decline was principally due to lower labor costs and, and, and third-party service costs. The lower costs were driven by also by the effects of the currency unification efforts uh, launched at the start of the year. And Nathan will explain uh, a bit more on this government-led initiative in his remarks. I should point out that as a result of the expiration of the PSC, or production sharing contract, uh, we will no longer be reporting oil and gas results for the balance of 2021. Now I'll turn to slide nine and discuss our power division, uh, where we produced 95 gigawatts of electricity in the first quarter, and that's down 38% from last year when we produced 153 gigawatts in the first quarter. Um, the decrease relative to last year was uh, driven uh, by the scheduling of maintenance activities that had uh, been previously deferred. Uh, these maintenance activities were concentrated on a, on a turbine at the power production facility in Boca de Jeruco. And uh, repairs have since been completed and power production has resumed uh, unit operating costs in the first quarter were 25.89. That's up 78% from the 14.57 for last year, and the increase was due to lower production, but uh, offset partially by lower labor and, and third-party costs. On to slide 10 now. Uh, I'd like to discuss our technologies business, which is uh, based in Fort Saskatchewan, and it uh, provides considerable opportunities for growth. Uh, in 2021 and beyond, uh, we'll be focused on uh, further developing and, and commercializing the innovative work underway in technologies. I thought it would be helpful to uh, provide an update on a couple of streams of work underway at technologies as examples of the opportunities in front of us. First, uh, we've further developed our patented uh, technology for upgrading bitumen, so it now results in a full upgrading 
in simple terms, it now means that oil producers using this technology will be able to transport bitumen to downstream markets more economically and without the use of diluent, and thereby re- reducing costs and increasing pipeline capacity. It also significantly reduces emissions and virtually eliminates the coking waste produced by uh, current upgrading methods. Our next step is to work on a demonstration plan in collaboration with a uh, bitumen producer. Other projects of interest are focused on improving um, metals uh, extraction processes with reduced costs and environmental impacts. For example, we're currently uh, developing a hydrometallurgical process for high arsenic copper concentrates that will uh, render the arsenic inert while uh, reducing emissions when compared to uh, current processes. Uh, such projects will enable mining projects to uh, meet electrification trend for, for many years. And we'll continue to provide updates on this exciting work and other projects in, in, in the quarters uh, ahead. That concludes my remarks on our operational performance. So I'll now uh, turn it over to Nathan for discussion on our financial results. Nathan? Thank you, Steve. And good morning, everyone. I'm on slide 12. I would like to begin my remarks with a discussion of our cash position. At March 31st, 2021, our cash and short-term investments totaled $158.3 million, down from $167.4 million at the start of the year. As you can see from the cash waterfall on this slide, our cash position was impacted by a number of developments in the quarter. Chief among them was the use of $3.3 million towards the repurchase of second lien notes with a principal value of $5 million, the use of $1.3 million towards capital expenditures, and the cash outflow of $11.3 million from operating activities. The cash outflow from operating activities was primarily driven by changes in working capital and seasonal factors, including a build of fertilizer inventory ahead of the spring planting season, uh, and reduced fertilizer pre-buys ahead of the planting season when compared to the same period uh, last year. The, the amount of that impact was about $5 million uh, less in pre-buys in Q121. Concurrent with the spring season, we do expect higher collections in Q2. In fact, just as uh, an, an indicator last year, approximately 45% of our fertilizer revenue was recorded in the second quarter. The decline in cash position was partially offset, however, by the receipt of US $5 million in distributions from the Moore Joint Venture, as well as the receipt of $2 million in interest payments from Enegas. The previously mentioned $5.7 million in Cuban energy receipts during Q1 impacts cash flow from continuing activities in the waterfall, as well as these interest payments from Enegas on the CSA loan. As you can see from slide 12, our cash position held by Enegas was down slightly at $74.4 million at the end of Q1, compared to $75 million at the start of the year. Moving to slide 13, we continue to be focused on reducing administrative costs. Consistent with our efforts to strengthen our balance sheet and preserve our liquidity, we took steps to reduce, reduce administrative expenses by 1.5 million in Q1 2021, as shown on slide 13. The cost savings were primarily driven by lower salaries and reduced legal expenses relative to the same period of last year. 
While it's unlikely we'll see the same amount of savings every period of 2021, cost-saving measures remain in effect and we we will maintain a close watch on administrative expenses going forward. Moving to slide 14, as David noted in his opening remarks, we experienced variability in our collections against overdue amounts owed to us by our Cuban partners in Q1. We received a total of US 5.7 million in payments in the quarter, which was below the amount expected of 14 million. Cuban collections in Q1 were impacted by a number of factors, including Cuba's limited access to foreign currency on account of the COVID-19 pandemic, the continued effects of US economic sanctions against the country, and Cuba's efforts to unify its currencies. And I'll provide more color on that point uh, in, in the next slide. Since the start of Q2, we have received 4.8 million in energy payments and have received all amounts expected for oil and gas receivables. For our power receivables, we continue to work with our Cuban partners to improve collections and ensure timely receipt of expected payments. I'll provide some further color on this point when I talk about MOA joint venture distributions. Despite these ongoing discussions and collection efforts, we expect collections to be variable through to the end of the year. Moving to slide 15. In our Q4 results conference call, I mentioned how the Cuban government began a process to unify its currencies consistent with economic reforms it previously announced. Given how Cuban's currency unification efforts favorably impacted labor costs in Q1, but adversely affected our ability to collect overdue amounts owed to us by our Cuban partners, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes reviewing how the unification process is unfolding and what we can expect in the near term. As many of you know, Cuba had two currencies until December 31st, 2020. The convertible currency, or CUC, was used by travelers and foreign businesses and was pegged against the US dollar on a one-to-one basis. This currency was unified with the CUP, or Cuban peso, the local currency which is effective January 1st, 2021. The CUP is now Cuba's only official currency and its exchange rate against the US currency will be 24 peso for every American dollar. The rationale for the currency unification was to support economic reforms launched by the country, harmonize wages throughout Cuba, particularly for individuals not involved in the tourism industry, and improve the valuation of Cuba's export goods. While a transition period is underway through June, whereby CUCs are being converted into CUPs, we continue to see no impacts to cash held at Enegas or amounts owed to us by our Cuban partners. All payments made to Sherrick will continue to be denominated in U.S. currency, including distributions from the Moa joint venture. The only real impact that we may see in the near term relates to the timing of receipts against overdue amounts owed to us. While amounts owed to us won't be devalued or lessened by the currency unification process, payments will likely vary month to month in the the near term, as we witnessed in Q1. As mentioned, the unification process did have a positive impact for our local operations by reducing labor costs, as well as third-party service costs in Q1. We will continue to monitor this development, but expect expect this trend to continue in the near term. 
We have received assurances from our Cuban partners that we will not be any worse off as a result of the unification. And the long-term impact may be to the benefit of local operations. Moving to slide 16. Largely as a result of improved market conditions and strong sales volume, the Mueller joint venture distributed 10 million in Q1 on a 100% basis, of which we received our 50% share, or US 5 million. As you can see from the slide, distributions received in Q1 were below amounts we received in the same period of last year. In addition, unlike Q4 of 2020, we did not receive any redirected amounts from GNC, our MOA joint venture partner, in Q1. Allow me to put some of this into perspective. The MOA joint venture board decides on amounts to be distributed to each partner on a quarterly basis. Factors that go into the decision-making process include available cash, prevailing commodity prices, operational performance and costs, and planned capital spend. A higher available cash balance at the end of 2019 is why we received a higher distri distribution in Q1 2020 relative to Q1 2021. The lower balance at the start of 2021 was in part driven by the significant distributions in Q4 2020 compared to Q4 2019, as you can see on the slide. Given prevailing nickel and cobalt prices and more joint venture liquidity requirements, we anticipate more joint venture distributions through the course of 2021. Just as important, we also anticipate the receipt of redirected amounts from GNC. We are currently in discussions with our Cuban partners to determine the amount and timing of these distributions. The MOA JV has been a dependable distributor of cash over the years. Just since the start of 2019, it has distributed 135 million US of cash on a 100% basis. Given its recent performance and the current outlook for nickel and cobalt prices, we expect this track record of success to continue. That concludes my remarks. I will now turn the call back to David for his concluding comments. All right. Uh, thank you, Nathan. Um, I want to talk a little bit about nickel markets here on slide uh, 18 and 19 and provide a little context of what was happening in the, in the quarter there. Um, and then we'll take your, your questions. Um, you know, carrying on from what we talked about in Q4 in terms of the, the, the good start to the year we've had from commodity prices uh, picking up on where, where 2020 ended, that continued, as you can see on the, on the chart on page 18 there. Uh, cobalt has continued to perform well. It's up 40-odd percent uh, this year, um, and the analyst expectations the next couple of years continue to grow. People are now talking about $30, $32 cobalt in the next couple of years, and we're obviously seeing the benefit of that in in our uh, in our NDCC already. Um, there are a number of factors that are driving that as, 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 as markets come back that were pretty hard hit for, for cobalt beyond the, the battery sector that were pretty hard hit by the, the pandemic, including aerospace, um, and in some cases, the, uh, the hospitality industry, uh, which is still uh, somewhat down, but we can see the orders pick up there again. Now, some of that is now starting to come back. Um, cobalt is still uh, a growing product in batteries, despite the, the uh, ongoing efforts to engineer down the, the amount of cobalt in, in a battery by volume. 
we are still seeing that that demand increase, uh, and see it is unlikely that uh, cobalt is ever going to be uh, uh, completely eliminated from batteries, uh, given the unique thermodynamic properties of, of cobalt that it brings to a battery and the stability it brings to a battery. So, cobalt demand seems to be uh, finding its feet again, and uh, and that has obviously been helpful to us from a from a cost and a and a, and a cash perspective. Uh, nickel prices you know, had a very strong second half to the year, and we saw the benefit of that in our uh, in our fourth quarter distributions from the Mola Joint Venture. Um, it started out the year well, um, but it did take and got up as high as I think it was pushing nine bucks towards the end of February, but it's since fallen off a little bit, a, a bit of a retrenchment I think based on the run up. It was also an announcement from uh, Singshan and China about their intentions to. Uh, Start trying to make an intermediary product that could subsequently be processed into a battery amendable form of nickel out of Indonesia. And so we've had quite a number of questions about that. So I'm going to just talk a bit about that and give you a little context around that. Uh, nickel today, though, is still about 780, 790, I think. Um, to put that into perspective, uh, this time last year, uh, the nickel price was $5.50 an ounce. So much better position than we were 12 months ago. Um, Page 19, you can see a few comments on Singshan. Let me just kind of tell you a couple of comments because when that when the news came out, it was seen as quite a quite a revolution. And I think it's somewhat because the nickel market had performed fairly well, but to some extent, it spooked the market, and, and we saw some retrenchment in the price. It has since stabilized and and rebuilding a bit. And I think that is just people have kind of adopted to the news and have come to understand what it actually means or doesn't mean. Uh, that there's some some uh, some perspective gaining on that. But let me let me give you make a few comments on that. Um, the first is the process that they announced is that they're going to try and deploy in terms of taking nickel pig iron and then further processing it into a nickel mat, an intermediary product is not new. I think when this first came out, this was touted as a, as a technological processing breakthrough. Um, but frankly, that process has been around for quite some time. It's been used by others uh, in New Caledonia. Uh, when we were, those of you who've been around a while, remember when we were looking at opportunities in Sulawesi eight or ten years ago, uh, this process to go to a map was one of the options we explored uh, for applying in Indonesia ourselves. Um, second, it's, it's a very carbon-intensive process. The nickel, nick, making nickel pig iron already in terms of putting uh, you know, raw laterite ore into, into furnaces and, and, and processing it into NPI is a carbon-intensive process. Uh, further processing that NPI means another round in the furnaces and burning sulfur to, uh, to, to, uh, to get the further reactions through the, through a pyrometallurgical process compared to the hydrometallurgical process that we use uh, is energy intensive and emissions intensive, particularly when you're using coal to generate uh, the electricity to fire the furnaces. Um, from an economic perspective, um, it, it, will be, it is more challenging from a cost perspective, ultimately, depending obviously on your price of power. Uh, but the pyrometallurgical process destroys the, the byproducts when we capture a significant cobalt byproduct credit that drives, uh, and you're all familiar with the impact that that has on our on indirect cash costs by being able to produce a significant amount of cobalt as well. The ability to, to capture and produce byproducts uh, through this pyrometallurgical process is lost. Um, and in terms of the economics of it, I think there's still work to be done to actually figure out what the, what the capital spend and the operating costs of this are actually going to look like. Um, but because there's already a market for nickel pig iron uh, and people getting paid for the contained nickel and nickel pig iron, it really only works in terms of the incremental capital and incremental operating expense. Uh, if there's a gap between the, the realized price for nickel contained and the nickel pig iron or ferro nickel product compared to what you can realize on a mat, uh, we did see over the course of last year as nickel prices begin to run, 
a bigger gap opening up uh, between LME grade class one nickel and, uh, and nickel contained in uh, iron type products like NPI and ferro-nickel. Uh, they were trading at a, at a bigger discount to LME than they have in the past as the LME price ran. Uh, but I think for this process to, to be economically viable in the long term, that, that gap has to continue to exist. Otherwise, the incremental capital and operating costs to process NPI into, into the mat uh, uh, won't be justified by the, by the incremental revenue from, uh, from selling NPI to selling the mat. Lastly, um, and this is more a, a capacity issue that, the, that the, the process itself doesn't really solve, and there's sort of two aspects to this. Um, one, there isn't a lot of refining capacity in the world at the moment that can take a nickel pat and nickel mat and further process it into a into a sulfate or some other battery amenable form of nickel. Um, not that that couldn't be done, but that is incremental capital again and incremental time to do that. Um, and the lastly, in terms of capacity, it doesn't create more nickel as a whole. The nickel big iron in, in, uh, coming out of Indonesia at the moment. Um, is all accounted for as part of the global nickel supply, for which demand is, is forecast to tighten up for a few years. Uh, being able to process nickel pig iron into into a mat and ultimately potentially into some other form of nickel uh, does does shift the the supply from from one column to another, uh, but it doesn't do anything to create new new nickel new nickel supply in the aggregate. And obviously that can be done, but that takes additional capital as well. So. Um, I think this is a development in the nickel market, and the people that we are aware of and will be and will continue to watch um, as, as nickel demand continues to grow for for, for electric vehicles and if the price does continue to climb as people expect. Some of these options may be more economic in terms of of, of meeting uh, the, the the future demand of nickel that we are expecting in the auto industry. But I thought it was important to give you a little context around uh, what the, what the, the impacts of that announcement actually were and and how we how we view it. Uh, as it is a, a subject that, that garnered quite a bit of interest in the nickel market and quite a number of, of questions from our shareholders uh, over the last few weeks. Um, overall, in terms of looking what's going on in markets and looking forward, um, we had talked at the beginning of the year about how it could be a volatile year. Um, uh, some of those risks still exist uh, as, uh, as, the, as, the, as the pandemic continues to unfold. And there are obviously a few more chapters in that story to be written yet. Um, but we are seeing uh, more confidence amongst analysts uh, of what the year is going to look like. Uh, Wood McKenzie is now talking about nickel prices remaining around the 750 mark for the balance of the year. And in the last few days, we've actually seen some aggressive movement up through that. We'll see what that's sustainable. But I think we will continue to see nickel prices uh, uh, moving up and down a bit, as, uh, as depending on, on, on you know, very short-term sentiment. I mentioned earlier that uh, growing optimism about where cobalt prices are going in the next couple of years now. Um, CRU talking about $32 cobalt uh, uh, from between here and 2023. Um, still, all this long-term interest in both cobalt and nickel is, is driven primarily by renewed interest in electric vehicles and, and the announcements that we've talked about for the last couple of years continue with commitments uh, being delivered upon. Demand for electric vehicles continues to grow along inconsistent with the forecasts despite the economic interruption of, of, the, of the pandemic. Um, General Motors, for example, just recently announced it's planning to spend $27 billion in the next five years, so ramping up its EV production and have the majority of its fleet by 2035. Uh, and importantly as well, while there is lots of discussion of different battery chemistries, um, nickel remains the dominant metal in, in, in cathodes in the battery chemistries that are being adopted today by, by automakers. 
Um, and as we've talked about many times, our, our class one nickel production, we see ourselves as very well positioned to take advantage of that. It, it is still true to me that the, to meet the class one nickel demand uh, that the world anticipates needing for electric vehicles in the next five or 10 years is going to require significant capital investment in the nickel industry. Uh, and to make a lot of that capital work, it's going to still take a nickel price north of, of where we are today. So that's what I want to tell you about in, in, in nickel and cobalt markets. Um, I guess just to sum up, um, we've talked about the, 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 our strong production quarter. Um, Steve mentioned that we are going to have our, 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 our more significant annual shutdown in June of this year uh, that will impact Q2 production somewhat, but uh, that is built into our guidance uh, for the year, and we're well on track to achieve our guidance with a strong start to the, the year in Q1. Uh, no other changes to our guidance. Uh, Steve talked a little bit as well about some of the different drivers that are uh, at play in our net direct cash costs with uh, obviously uh, growing, uh, uh, elevating cobalt prices helps us on the byproduct credit, but we're also seeing cost pressures on, on input commodities and, and how those two move in relation to one another will determine how our, our costs unfold. Um, Cuban collections continues to be an issue for us. Um, uh, Nathan expanded on that in some way. Uh, Cuba continues to have a difficult time uh, with having lost their tourism season uh, this, this past winter. Uh, no real uh, relief from U.S. sanctions yet, and, and ongoing issues in the pandemic they're addressing with have, have left them tight for cash. We are seeing cash flow come out nonetheless and continue to work with our partners and what that cash flow profile is going to look like uh, over the course of this year. That operator is what we wanted to tell everyone about this morning. And um, if you're right now, we're happy to take any questions that uh, anybody might have. If you would like to ask a question at this time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. We will pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. And your first question comes from the line of Don DeMarco. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Uh, Nathan, I'm just looking at uh, slide 15, unification of Cuban currencies, and I see the impacts to share. It says all payments denominated in U.S. dollars. Does this suggest that if there is inflation in that unified currency, that share it is adequately inflated from that? Morning, Don. Uh, could, sorry, could you repeat the, the question, please? Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, I'm just looking at slide 15, um, the unification of Cuban currencies. And I see that it says all payments are denominated in U.S. dollars. Does this suggest that if there's inflation in that unified currency, that, that share it is not exposed to any of that inflation? Yes, that, that's correct, Tom. Okay, thank you. And um, now, are you seeing any signs of the U.S. administration warming up to Cuba, or what do you anticipate uh, might be the benefits, um, as expected, when the, the Biden administration rolls out their Cuban policy? I I can give a little 
context around that. I mean, obviously, it's all sort of speculation to somewhat, but certainly during the election campaign, the Biden administration had talked about um, reverting back to more of an Obama era type of policy towards Cuba. Um, uh, and you know, who you will call back in uh, the, the final years of the Obama administration, Obama actually traveled to Cuba. Obama made quite a number of easing of, of, of uh, various things from, from Americans traveling to Cuba to sending money to Cuba, um, making it easier for, for, uh, for, for people to do business in Cuba. In fact, Obama did about as much as he could unilaterally without getting you know, the actual embargo or the Helmsburg legislation repealed by Congress that the Republican Congress didn't have much interest uh, in doing. Um, under Trump, we saw all of that reversed. In fact, there was, pretty there was something like 200 separate instances over the four years of the Trump administration of them tightening sanctions uh, on, on Cuba, including the implementation of Title III, uh, severe restrictions on Americans sending uh, cash to family in Cuba. Uh, they put Cuba back on the state sponsor of terrorism list, which makes it more difficult for financial institutions to engage in, in Cuban-related transactions. And, and we've had to navigate all of that over the last few years. Um, what we've been hearing both from the Cubans and from the Canadian government and the interactions that have been had with the American government is that they're, hopefully they're, they're going to do relatively early on is um, at least make a couple of gestures in terms of easing the restrictions on sending money to family and the, and the, and the restrictions on the Americans being able to travel to, to Cuba to, to visit family. The state sponsorship of, of terrorism designation complicates things and that there's quite a sophisticated uh, elaborate process that needs to be gone through to to review and, and repeal that again and the trump administration put that in just in in the, in the last week or two of the, of the trump administration the other challenge i think we have in terms of trying to predict when all this is going to happen is uh, is just at what point does this actually become a priority for the for the biden administration um what we've kind of heard is that yes they intend to do it um but it's it's kind of not at the top of their to-do list just yet as they deal with the pandemic deal with their infrastructure bill and immigration crisis on the southern border and china and iran and climate change um but we are expecting in time that we will see it probably starting with some of the things on remittances uh and and travel to the u.s uh travel by americans to cuba and then some of the other sanctions that have been were put in place by the Trump administration over the four years, all of which cumulatively had the effect of choking off Cuban sources of hard currency, um, which obviously flows through to an impact on us in terms of their ability to, to service their hard currency payables you know, to us. So we do ex still expect in time that we will see some reversion um, back to uh, historic policies uh, on, on that, uh, which will obviously be beneficial to Cuba that will ease the restrictions and make it easier for them to access hard currency and, and, and the imports they need. Uh, and that will then have a, a knock-on effect to us in terms of the, the liquidity being available in the Cuban system for us to see more uh, in some of the intentions that we the Cubans had with us in 2019 and 2020 uh, before being hit with the pandemic and all these sanctions in terms of paying down that overdue receivable funds. Um, because the timing of that is up in the air and the, and the, and the, uh, and the evolution of the pandemic is still up in the air, um, it, is, it leaves us with, with less clarity as to what the exact timing of closing on the receivables are going to look like this year. Um, all the conversations we've had, the, the Cubans have been very candid in terms of the position that they are in and their intention to see us repay. Um, but they've obviously got competing priorities down there as well for, for pretty scarce dollars at the moment. And we continue to work through with them to believe as we have in terms of the FX transactions between MOA and Energas and the, and the dividend generating capacity of MOA. 
uh, to, to find ways to make sure that we're, we're going to, we'll see some cash flow there this year. But uh, there are a number of different factors at play there, including the, the U.S.-Cuban uh, relationship that you were asking about. Okay. Thank, uh, thank you for that, that answer. That's useful, useful content. Yeah, very useful. Uh, so the timing is uncertain, but there's reason to be encouraged, and, and it, it's just a question of when they're going to really um, prioritize it. Yeah, I think just the issue is that, you know, that Cuba, from an American economy perspective, is not mm-hmm. of an order of magnitude of some of the other things they, they want to deal with first, which I think kind of okay. makes sense. Um, so maybe just as a, uh, as a final question, what is the annual budget of your bitumen upgrading project? And just to give us a sense of the magnitude, and are you expecting any catalysts on this project in the next year? So the, the 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 annual budget is not significant. I mean, it's part of the of our done within our technologies group, mm-hmm. um, which I think there's actually more disclosure on in, in this year's MGNA as we've broken it out as an operating segment. It's all captured in that kind of annual spend that we, we in our technologies group as a whole. Um, the catalyst there will be, and I don't have a sense of timing. Is we've actually you know we've obviously run tests on different sources of bitumen for with, with different bitumen providers, and we've been talking to different bitumen providers. The catalyst there, which we're working towards, is ideally would be, from our perspective, uh, partnering with one of those bitumen producers to build a pilot plant of, a, you know, call it a thousand barrels a day or something, to demonstrate the viability of the process on a commercial scale. The conversations we've had to date are you know, quite encouraged by the by the results, um, and so that's what we'll be focusing on 2021 is to try and put something together, some way of financing a, a, a demonstration plant or a pilot plant or whatever you want to call it that would then be. Uh, the, the, the the precedent step to uh, to a full blown commercialization. Okay, thank you for that. That's all for me. And your next question comes from the line of Tony Robson. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for the presentation, and thank you for uh, taking my question. Uh, going from the macro level to micro. I apologize for these small accounting questions. Uh, the 11-day shutdown at Fort, which will be fairly expensive, I guess, uh, will that be capitalized? We'll see as a CapEx item, or will it be run through the P&L? Uh, that was the first question. Um, second question was, um, there was a comment about there essentially be no further releasing releases in terms of the finance for oil and gas. You were spending about $2 million per quarter on admin. Is there still some residual holding cost there um, for oil and gas, please? Thank you. I'll, I'll tackle some of that, Tony. Um, uh, and if Nathan has anything to add, or if we have any other detail that we can share with you afterwards on that, we, we can do that. Um, so the, the the costs of the shutdown are all built into you know, the, the reality is there's a, a variety of tasks, some some big, some small, that all get done in the course of the shutdown. Uh, some of the, the longer shutdown that gets done every five or now six years. Uh, does involve um, some of the, some of the pressure vessels that need to be inspected and changed out, and so it is a bit more significant from a cost perspective uh, as well as a time perspective. Uh, but the and, and elements of it are are expensed as maintenance, and some of them are capital, depending on each of the individual activities in uh, that, that comprise the you know the total scope of work for the for the shutdown. Um, but to the extent they are in, uh, they're, they're to be expensed. Uh, that is captured in our in our NDCC uh, and NPR uh, estimates. Uh, to the extent that there are elements that are capitalized, it is it is captured in our in our capital budget guidance for the year. Uh, so you'll see all of that, you know, we, uh, and, and and some of the variation that happens from quarter to quarter in our capital spending at the MOA JB. 
um, is driven by the time of shutdowns and the time of equipment deliveries and, and some of that. And so, yeah, and I suspect we'll see some of that uh, in Q2. Um, so you're going to have to remind me what your second question was. Uh, just holding costs for oil and gas. Your, your admin expenses, for example, we're running about two million bucks a quarter. It's yes, not yeah. big either way. Yeah, but. yeah. yeah um, so we've already taken significant steps to, to reduce uh, that. Uh, you know, beginning last year as production was winding down, um, and some of that uh, was, was reflected in the lower operating costs that, that Steve told you about in, in the guidance there. Uh, there were further steps that were taken uh, and, and costs that do go away with the actual expiration of the contract. Uh, we do have some some legacy admin costs and it is actually tied in and run collectively with our power business uh, so, so, but uh, but bringing costs in line with uh, with the activities there uh, is what we've actually been focused on in the last nine nine months or so and that will flow through so there'll be a significant reduction in that that overall admin rate compared to uh, what it is when it was actually an operating business now great very useful thank you And there are no more questions at this time. I would like to turn the call back over to Mr. David Pathy for closing remarks. All right. Well, I'll be very quick. Thank you uh, once again, everybody, for, for joining. As I say, I know there's a lot going on today, and so I mean, we weren't able to have everybody join us uh, today that we uh, that would have liked to. Um, but we are around, uh, Joe and Nathan and I, for any questions and follow-up that come out for this and, and happen to talk to anybody. Um, beyond that, uh, the next time we'll have a chance to speak to you uh, uh, on mass will be about three weeks' time. We have our, our AGM this year uh, is uh, to be held on, on May 20th. Uh, we will look forward to speaking to all of you then. Uh, until then, uh, and have a good day. Speak to you soon. This does conclude today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.